Right. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for just the beautiful weather you've given us. Lord, we thank you that you gather us together. Lord, we've learned not to take for granted our healthy days. We've learned to not take for granted the days that we can come together in person or we can watch online together. Uh, Lord, we don't want to take for granted this moment, this time we have of worship and and to hear your word and to, to come together, Lord. Lord, we pray that it would be a blessing and, and it will honor you, Lord. We pray your spirit would speak to us, teach us your word, encourage our hearts, strengthen us, Lord God, prepare us for the week that we are about to have, even the day that we're about to have today. Lord, may we just be abiding by your spirit. We give this time to you, our focus to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I I just pray that we give our focus to you, because of course, some of you realize, you know, there's a big game that is going to happen. I'm not going to tell you how much more time it is for it, right, because we're going to be focused here today, but uh, there's a big game today that I have a particular rooting interest Now, I'm going to ask you, please do not tell me anything about the score after this service, okay? I'm watching you if you're checking your phones. Even if you're checking it afterwards, please do not tell me the score. I don't even find it humorous if you're sarcastically hinting anything to me, right? I don't find it humorous. I've had that happen before. Hey, Pastor Mike, you know, uh, ooh, you're not going to like it. Don't tell me anything, please, all right? Don't hint, don't look at me suggesting anything, it's okay. Okay, I'm recording it. I may or may not be watching it on my phone as I drive, just kidding. I might have it on the radio or something, but no, but I'm recording it to capture every moment, so please don't give me a hint. But, uh, so, of course, I have a rooting interest of what happens today, and, you know, you, you, as a fan, you think of when you have a team in a big game, what is the key to victory, right? What's going to be key to your team winning the game? And so if you're a sports fan, you know, or this is even outside the realm of sports, any kind of conflict, any kind of confrontation, competition of any sort, what is the key? And one of the keys to victory is knowing your opponent, right? You got to know your opponent and know their strategy. If you understand your opponent, you understand their strategies, you increase the likelihood that you will have victory, right? You know how they'll attack, you know how they're going to defend you, all those sorts of things. So that is key to it. And of course, the, the second part key to victory is your execution. You have to know how to execute your strategy, right? So those are the, some of the keys to winning, the keys to having your team experience victory. Now last week, I, I used the analogy, I compared our study and mark to a football drive, as silly as that sounds, right? You know, boy, you're, you really are a football fan, Mike. All right, as silly as it sounds, there's some metaphors, so there's something that you can relate to, right? We talked about how a football drive, every play, every stop, every uh, detail and every position is working together to get to this certain goal, which is to score a touchdown. 
Well, let me kind of expand on that analogy here. And just as your goal is to score a touchdown, there's an opponent, right? There's an opponent that's trying to keep you from scoring. And they have a strategy. Their strategy is try to stop you from attaining your goal. They're going to keep you from getting a touchdown, right? Now, we saw that, we mentioned, I should say, that Jesus' journey, as we're looking at the, the book of Mark, his journey is going to lead him to the cross. That is his destination. That is his goal. But along the way, we're going to see that Jesus has some opposition. He has some people, he has uh, uh, obstacles that are going to try to prevent him from his destination and accomplishing his goal. And we're going to see some of the challenges today that he was challenged from the beginning. And we're going to take a look at, through those challenges, how Jesus responds to the challenge. How he responds and, and what does it reveal about Jesus as he's encountering, as he's engaging with the enemy. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. And that's why, I haven't mentioned to you, that's why I encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you have a Bible, bring it to church so you're not relying on your phone, so you're not tempted to check the score. Mark chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 12. It says, And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now, if you remember, I equated the study of Mark like an epic action movie. Right? So I don't know if you like those kind of genre of movies where there's a lot of action in a movie. Mark continuously moves from one scene to the next and often, often emphasizing immediacy. There's constant action. There's constant things going on. We'll see a, a word repeatedly throughout our study of Mark, and that word is immediately. We'll see this often. Mark uses this word throughout his gospel accounts. This word immediately. We see it 11 times just in chapter 1 alone. 41 times in all of Mark. And in just in verses 10 through 12, we see it twice already. This word immediately. Right? Immediately is like an action word. It speaks to a sense of timing, right? As well as authority, urgency, power. For instance, if I was to tell you, the teacher came into the noisy room and the room quieted down. Okay, you can picture that scene. But if I was to tell you, the teacher came into the room and the room immediately quieted down. That word sets a different tone, right? If I say the dad instructed his children to clean the house and they cleaned the house that day. You may think about what that day may look like. But if I was to tell you the dad instructed his children to clean the house and they immediately cleaned the house that day, does that paint a little bit different picture, right? It shows that they, the children, cleaned immediately after the parents said so. I know, weird. Some of those parents are like, I don't know what that looks like. 
The son was sick. The father prayed for the son, and the son felt better. If I was to say the the son was sick, his father prayed, and the son immediately felt better. A different tone, right? The sense of immediacy, something happened right away. If I say the Rams got the ball and scored a touchdown, like, okay. But if I was to say the Rams got the ball and immediately scored a touchdown, it adds a different flavor to it, right? A sense of maybe authority, timing, power, right? All those kinds of things. So Mark uses this term to describe action, timing. It illustrates some sense of authority. And so we're going to see this throughout Mark. And we saw it first in verse 10, going back from last week. Verse 10, it says, and immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. We see that the Holy Spirit immediately descends upon Jesus as he comes out of the water. So we saw last week the giving of the Holy Spirit upon faith in the Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord is given to the believer. That picture fulfills this picture of baptism, being dead in Christ, being given new life, and the Holy Spirit descending and is given to the believer. The Holy Spirit is immediately given. It's not given in installment plans. That's encouraging to know, right? That when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, He gives you the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. And He gives it to you. It's not in installment plans. It's not like, okay, well, prove to me you're going to be faithful. I'll give you a little bit of me now. I'll give you a little bit of me later. Immediately we receive the Holy Spirit. So we can see immediately again in verse 12. And immediately the Spirit impelled Him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. So we see Jesus immediately being empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. Jesus is in complete submission of the Holy Spirit, because we see that immediately the Holy Spirit, after he's baptized, he sends him to a period of testing. Forty should be a familiar number. If you know your scriptures, if you know your Old Testament particularly, 40 should be a familiar number to us, right? We see 40 throughout in scripture. It's, you know, some some examples. 40 days of rain with the flood in Genesis. 40 days Goliath challenged the Israelite army, if you're familiar with that story. 40 days Moses met with God up in Mount Sinai. Forty days Elijah met and forty days Elijah fasted and met with the Lord on Mount Horeb. Forty days was a warning for Nineveh. We saw that with Pastor Andy with the study of Jonah. Nineveh was warned that in forty days they were going to face judgment. So they needed to repent. And then forty years of wandering in the wilderness, because the Israelites were not um, they they didn't trust God. God they were at the point of entering in the promised land. And they didn't trust God. So they had to wander another 40 years in the wilderness for that unbelieving generation to die off so that the Israelites could go into the promised land. It's kind of interesting to note, I saw this note. Rabbis at one point regarded 40 years of age 
as the age of understanding, the age when a man reaches his intellectual prime. That's kind of interesting. Right? I don't know how true this is. I'm not saying this is fact, but I just thought that was an interesting idea that at 40 years of age, a man reaches his intellectual prime. Now, some of you wives may be looking at your husbands and thinking, I don't know if that's the case. Some of you are like, well, if that was your peak, <laughs> that peak wanes real fast. I don't know. Some of you are like, yeah, it's been downhill ever since, right? <laughs> some of you, if you're not 40 years of, old, uh, of age yet, you have something to look forward to, okay? You're not even at your intellectual peak yet, believe it or not. All right, you're 18, you're 21, you think you're at your peak? No, nah, no, nah, you're not at your peak yet. If you're past the age of, if you're, we're, we're past the age of 40 and, and we've reached our peak, well, just take comfort knowing you reached your peak, right? And you can just coast to the rest of the way. I don't know if that's true or not, but 40 is a significant number in Scripture. But there's something else interesting. Mark uses a forceful word to describe the Holy Spirit's leading. He says the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. He immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Now, many people fear being led by the Holy Spirit, right? A lot of people are scared off at that notion of being led by the Spirit. If God leads me somewhere, what would that look like? I'm afraid God's going to take me somewhere. I'm afraid of what that's going to be like. Am I going to like it? Is it going to be dangerous? Is it going to be scary? Can I make it through a destination if God is leading me somewhere? Can I trust him with that? And we're faced with that question. Are we willing to submit to the Holy Spirit's leading? And especially if he's leading us down a difficult path. How many of you are willing to be led by the Spirit knowing that it's going to be a difficult path? path. We see Jesus, he doesn't question the Spirit's leading. We see complete submission to the Holy Spirit, his, the Holy Spirit's leading and his purpose. Now in Mark, we don't see a lot of detail of this temptation, but we see it in Matthew and Luke's account. So we're going to take a look, about, a look a little bit more closely. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to take a look at Luke, Luke's account. In Luke chapter 3, we see a little bit more detail of this time of testing with Jesus. Verse 1 says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. Stop there for a moment. So Jesus is brought to a time of seclusion into the wilderness. And for 40 days, Jesus is fasting from food while being tempted by Satan himself. Now, we're not given much detail of those 40 days. All we know is that Jesus is being tempted in those days, and he's fasting from food. And we see, interestingly... That after those 40 days, we see Jesus' humanity here. Because it says, after those 40 days of fasting ended, he became hungry. Now, how many of you have ever fasted for a long period of time? Any of you? Been fasting for a long period of time? 
Okay? If you fasted for a long period of time, you kind of understand the experience. When you fast from food or you're fasting from something, what you're doing is you're depriving your flesh. You're depriving your desires for something, right? And in your time of de- depriving yourself, let's say, from food, you are giving some more time and focus to God in prayer, right? And so when you're fasting from food, now we're not talking about a medical fast, right? But when you're fasting from something, you're, you're depriving your body from something that it desires, naturally desires, and you're giving your focus to God in prayer and supplication, right? Now, if you've, if you've been, if you've fasted before, there's a point in which hunger is strong, right? If you fasted before, when you start a fast, there's a point where your hunger is very strong. Why? Because you're used to feeding your body a certain time, a certain amount of food. So you're aware of your hunger. You're aware of your hunger pains. You're used to giving your body the food at a certain points of time of the day. Your body is used to depending upon, depending on those foods. But as you go along in your fast, you continue it. There's a sweet spot among the fasting where you no longer have those same cravings. You're no longer, you find yourself that you're no longer dependent upon the scheduled hunger pains. You're no longer desiring those things. You've learned that, you know what, I don't have to eat now. I don't have to do those things now. So there's that sweet spot. So there's a point in the fasting, if you do it long enough, that you've learned, you've adjusted that, you know what, I don't need to give in to these desires. I don't know if you've all experienced that. But at the same time, there's a mental game about fasting. It all becomes mental now. Your body has learned that, you know, I don't have to eat right now, but it's a mental game. Do I need to give in? And especially as you come to the end of it, because your, your body will probably experience a weakness, right? You're not as strong, maybe, or perhaps, you know, you're, you're, you're struggling through a day. Perhaps you don't have the calories, maybe. And it's a mental game. And your need may become apparent that you haven't eaten in a while. You look at the, the mirror, you look on the scale, okay, you've lost some weight there. But when your fast is over, and you start to get the mental countdown of your fast is going to end, you feel free to indulge a bit, right? I don't know if you've ever, if you've done a, a what is it, the, how many hour famine is it? 30 hour famine, right? 30 hour famine you've done with youth kids. It's so fun to watch them do that 30-hour famine because they start off all excited, but like hour two comes along. and like, oh, my stomach. I'm so hungry. And then by like hour 28, they hear that there's going to be a big food celebration and they're just like, oh, my stomach. It's growling. I'm hungry, right? When you're entering the end of the fast, then those urges come back up. You were doing great in the middle. But once it's at the end, then you're feeling the hunger again, right? After Jesus finishes his fast of 40 days, he is hungry. Jesus was tempted by Satan in every way in those 40 days. However, that wasn't the end of his testing period. 
we see three specific ways in which Satan tries to tempt Jesus after these 40 days. And these three ways are common to all of us. I think we've all experienced in some way or another what Jesus experiences here. Look at verse 3. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Here's the first attempt. Satan tries to tempt Jesus with food. What's the method? Satan challenges Jesus, if you're really the son of God, prove it. I don't know if you've ever been tempted that way. If you're really who you say you are, prove it. Show me, right? Now, I love bread. Any bread lovers here? I love bread. If I'm coming off a 40-day fast... You put some bread and some soft bread with a crispy, crusty crust of it, as warm as hot. You put that in front of me at the end of a 40-day fast, I'm devouring that whole loaf, right? You know what I mean? If you've ever gone to a restaurant, you're hungry, and they put that, that bread in the beginning. Oh, man, I, I could eat that bread for dinner, right? Here Jesus is being tempted Now, you can imagine, what's the big deal about this temptation? What's the big deal if Jesus were to make bread? Satan appeals to Jesus' hunger, but I really don't think this is about hunger, nor is this about bread. Jesus' response, he responds by referencing Moses. When Moses is charging Israel before they're about to enter into the promised land, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, He says, you shall, he's talking to the Israelites, right? Moses is talking to the Israelites. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus cites this passage, this moment. And out of this testing, this time of testing, we do see Jesus' heart here. Jesus would not be deceived by what proceeded out of Satan's mouth. He would not need to prove himself. He would show that he is not dependent upon satisfying his desires even in a moment of weakness, even in a moment of hunger. He would not be dependent upon the desires of his flesh. Rather, he says, I will depend upon the mouth of the Lord, what comes out of the mouth of the Lord. God's word is the nourishment. Right, familiar to our theme verse of the year, right? What we talked about being nourished, our roots being like a tree planted in the waters, being nourished by the word of God. Just saying, look, man does not live by bread alone, but by the words of God. We look at this scenario. It's important to note what proceeds out of the enemy's, enemy's mouth is never intended for our good. Satan was not looking out for Jesus' benefit. 
He was not taking care of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I saw you were hungry. Yeah, I tested you, but you know what? You're coming out of it. Let me take care of you. Let me make sure you have some food. He was not looking out for Jesus' benefit. And we need to understand what comes out of the enemy's mouth is never intended for our good. I see Satan testing Jesus. I see here he's testing Jesus' heart, maybe perhaps trying to provoke sinful pride, maybe to engage in conversation with Jesus to try to trip him up a little bit. We'll see that a lot of that in Mark. Try to get at your pride, Jesus. Look at the second attempt. He tries to tempt Jesus with visual appeal of immediate gratification. Using this, using this method of showing the vision of glory. Look what in verse 5. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. For it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I am certain that Satan knows this. He will reign over all the earth. The kingdom will be given to him, right? But first, Jesus must accomplish his mission. Before he could reign, he he needed to go to the cross. He needed to be that suffering servant. And we see here that Satan says, I can give it all to you right now. All the glory and power can be yours. He gives him this vision of all the kingdoms and all the glory. He says, I can give it all to you right now. You just need to bow down before me, and it will be yours. Now, isn't this what Satan often tempts us with? This sense of immediate gratification. He gives us the visuals wrapped in a beautiful package. We visualize, we imagine something good. He says, this could be yours. Your life will be so much better if this was yours right now. I can give it to you. You can experience it right now. All you need to do is give me your devotion. If you give me your heart, I'll give you whatever your heart desires. Right? Don't we get tempted that way so much in the day? All the visuals we see around us, this promise of, of glory, this promise of satisfaction. He says, it could be yours if you just give me your heart. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, you should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I think we can learn from Jesus, right? If we can also say, I will faithfully serve the Lord even if it leads me down a hard, difficult path. I would rather choose that hard, difficult path the Lord is bringing me to than go down the easy path that will lead to my destruction. See, Satan's saying, I'll give it to you all. You you don't have to suffer. You don't have to go through the things that you're going to go through. I'll give it to you now if you just worship me. Jesus said, no. I would rather go through the hard, difficult path 
that the Spirit is leading me to, that I am supposed to go to, then take the easy path. Look at the third attempt. Satan tempts Jesus by challenging him with pride. And he uses uh, God's word, or he tries to distort God's word. Look at verse 9. And he led him to Jerusalem, him being Jesus, to Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, notice the second time he's saying this, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And on their, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here Satan quotes Psalms. He quotes a psalm about trust in the Lord, that the Lord will be your deliverer in times of need. But Satan is twisting God's word. He's twisting the context to challenge Jesus. It wasn't time for Jesus to reveal himself to the temple. Can you imagine if Jesus would throw himself down to the temple and the angels charge over him? It wasn't time for Jesus to reveal himself. But Jesus countered Satan with the word of God, quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't put God to the test. We have to be careful not to challenge God by demanding he prove himself by catering to our needs. Ever been guilty of that? We have to be careful not to test God to prove himself by catering to our own needs. See, Satan challenged Jesus to prove himself. If you are the son of God, show it. Prove it. But not only did he want Jesus to prove, he says, prove it because the Father says he's going to deliver you. So let's see if he does. See, Satan tempts us by questioning God's word as well, right? He uses God's word to twist things, to distort the truth, to get us to question God's intentions for us. Question whether God truly wants our benefit, truly wants our good intentions. And so sometimes we get in moments where we say, God, if you really love me, God, if you're really there, if you're really a good God, then you need to prove it to me by changing something that's going on with me or in me or around me. We have to be careful that we're not trying to test God to prove himself to us. Jesus simply says, you shall now put the Lord your God to the test. Don't put God to the test. And then what happens in verse 13? And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We'll see that this was not the end of Jesus' testing, but he passed this moment. I find a great comfort knowing, and in Hebrews 4.15 it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's great comfort knowing. That God, that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things, yet without sin. He experienced those moments of temptation, but he resisted. He remained faithful 
to the Father. And the same Holy Spirit that descended upon the Son of God when He rose out of the waters, the same Holy Spirit that immediately descended is the same Holy Spirit that is given to us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. He is the same Holy Spirit who will be with us in our moments of temptation and trials. In those same moments of adversity, when we feel like we're engaging with the enemy, whether it's Satan himself, the, you know, whatever it may be, or whether it's our own desires, that same spirit is dwelling in us if we have Christ in our life. Now, if you want to know how your relationship with the Lord is progressing, have you ever wondered that? You wonder, yeah, how is my relationship with God doing? I would suggest one way to measure or compare or, or to, to evaluate your relationship with the Lord, how it's progressing, is to see how you respond to the trials you're going to face this year with how you responded previously. How do you respond to moments of adversity? Moments of temptation. Do you respond to it the same way? Do you engage with it the same way? Or do you do it differently? Here's some things to think about. Some things we can learn from and look at how Jesus countered this situation. First, I want to encourage us by saying, if we're finding ourselves engaged with the enemy, one, I think we need to tweak our perspectives. Change our perspectives. I've said this times before. But I want to say it again, your perspective on a situation can make a big difference in how you respond. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation before, but you've you've really said, like, you know, at this time, God, I'm going to devote more to you. I want to get my relationship with God right with you. Have you ever thought that before? Maybe it's at a retreat or, or whatever it may be, or maybe in a message. And then it's like immediately after trials come, Hardship comes. Have you ever been in that place where, God, I'm trying to get right with you and all these things are happening? Ever experienced that? And so many times our reaction is complaining like, God, why is this happening now? I'm trying to get close to you. Why? I think if we could tweak the perspective to say, you know what? God gave us this moment, this desire to get close to him so that we will be prepared for what is going to take place. You see, the slight change in perspective can make a world of a difference. Instead of saying, you know what, why is this happening to me? You're saying, God, you are preparing me that you will be with me through this season of time. And it may not be to test you, that's the intention, But we all understand in times of adversity, our faith, our trust in God gets tested. I don't like saying that God is making you go through this to test you. But that in those moments, we are tested. Our faith is tested. Our trust is tested. The character and substance of our relationship with God does get tested. But if we tweak our perspectives, it changes our approach The second thing we need to think about when our times of adversity, when we're engaged with the enemy, is to understand that your desires will be your greatest opponent. I don't like saying the enemy made us do something. I don't like saying Satan made me do something. Because our 
desires will be our biggest enemy. James talks about how let no one say one is tempted by God. I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts, his own desires. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What's that saying here? When we face temptation, our biggest enemy is the desires that are in us. That's where, we become, that where it becomes problematic. We all want to be the best, right? Some of us more than others. Maybe we all want to be right. How many of you have a problem? You don't have to raise your hand. How many have a problem with having to always be right? Maybe you want to be in charge. You want power. We want to be in control. Not all temptations are created equal, right? Not all temptations are experienced equally among us. What may be a temptation for you may not be a temptation for somebody else, right? Chocolate versus french fries. (laughs) I don't know how many of you where chocolate is a weakness. There may be someone that chocolate is not a temptation whatsoever, but their temptation is french fries, right? Money versus attention. For some, money is not a temptation, but attention is a temptation. Sports or spirituality, that could be a temptation. Sexual desires or substance abuse, those can be different areas of temptation. Your desires can be your greatest opponent or it can be your greatest strategy against the enemy. But you have to be aware that those desires, if those desires are leading you away from God, you don't need Satan to come around. That temptation is there. So some things, so understand your desires can be your greatest opponent. But third thing, and we can see this with Jesus, do not reason with the enemy. Do not engage in conversation, whether it's with yourself or an apparent enemy. Do not reason with them. Whether your desires are from the enemy or not, don't prolong the conversation in that moment. You know what I mean? Jesus' response to temptation was concise. He resisted and he moved on. Simply put, this is what the word of God says. I don't need this. I'm moving on. We get into trouble when we have these conversations. We try to reason with temptation. Well, it's only a moment. Well, no one's going to see. Well, it's not really hurting anybody. Well, did God really say I couldn't do this? Well, does God really see me? See, the longer we prolong those conversations in our head or with other people, we find ourselves going further and further down that wrong path, right? So don't reason with the enemy. Know the word of God, resist, and move on. And lastly, we'll, we'll end with this. Manage your mind. I've said this in, in times before. In other words, let the word of God shape our thinking and hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus quoted scripture, and that's what he used to combat the enemy. 
Right? The Bible presents the word of God as our sword, our weapon against the enemy. It's so important that we are in the word of God, the source of truth. And I'm going to emphasize this throughout the year because it's going to be needed because we're going to be engaging the enemy at some point in time, if not throughout the day. And he's going to throw all these different strategies, all these different ways to prevent us. And we need to be able to know the truth and say, look, I know who my God is. I know his purposes for me. I know how he sees me and values me and loves me. This, what you're promising me, is not it. It's not it. And move on. We're all going to engage the enemy at some point in time. The enemy has a strategy. Even outside of that, we have these desires in us that can lead us away from God. Know that God loves you. His spirit wants to give his spirit to dwell in you, to help you, so that you don't have to engage the enemy that way. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, as we come before you, we thank you that we don't face the enemy alone, that your spirit dwells in us, enables us, empowers us to resist. That, Lord, even though we may stumble with our own desires, you give us the Holy Spirit to transform us, to change our minds, change our desires. And, Lord, I pray that we would just draw close to you, to your word, to time with you. That you may help us, Lord, in those moments when we're engaged with the enemy, we're engaged with our own desires, our sinful desires. May we be willing to follow you. We give you praise, Lord God, for you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.